on mars with just matt um hillary can't come to the phone right now she is uh well so here's what happened last week we didn't record a a podcast because well we were both sick i was sort of sick not really that sick hillary was really sick and she had a lot of work to do i didn't have any work to do um but i didn't record anything last week anyway, because this is uh, Marooned on Mars. It's a uh, Kim Stanley Robinson focused podcast, which we're currently reading through Aurora. Um, but, oh, you'll find out why I said, oh, in a minute. Um, I figured that I would record a podcast anyway, because we missed one last week and there uh, we seem to have more um, listeners nowadays. So uh, just to maintain some continuity, I thought maybe I would try to record something and just talk at you for an hour. So if you don't like me, which is entirely logical, uh, and you only want to hear Hillary, I would stop listening altogether right now. If you do want to hear me talk for an indeterminate at this point amount of time, uh, what's on offer is I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some of the science fictions that I encountered over the past week, uh, and, uh, just sort of share some thoughts about, about them. They'll be in the show notes. So if you've downloaded this and you want to cut straight to the chase and find out what I'm going to be talking about, you can look at them right now. Another thing to mention, which is why I said, oh, a second ago is that there's a cat in my lap and it's drooling all over me. She is drooling all over me. She's drooling all over my shirt and my chair. Uh, She's a drooly, drooly little thing. And in probably about 25 minutes, if not sooner, she's going to start crying because uh, uh, it's almost time to feed her. And she likes to whine and cry and be a real little baby uh, when it's time to get fed. I'm also drinking beer uh, because I'm all alone in my house by myself. Uh, my partner is out at some dinner thing. And so uh, this might not even go out to you because uh, it could be just too embarrassing. But I need the beer to um, – it's liquid courage, as they say. I'm drinking a porter from a fine craft brewery here in uh, Maine where I am podcasting from. So with all that, uh, one thing I wanted to say actually before I get into the science fictions that I was talking about was, as you know, if you've been listening, this is a Bernie Bernie Sanders uh, fan podcast as well. And I did want to mention that I did go canvassing last weekend uh, in my uh, town of Lewiston, Maine, and I can't really recommend it highly enough. Uh, 
to go canvassing uh, for whoever you are supporting. But hopefully you're supporting the boy Bernie Sanders. But um, to actually, you know, whether you want to go canvassing or whether you want to make phone calls or send texts for whatever candidate that you support, get involved. It really makes you feel a lot better. One of the reasons I'm also recording right now uh, a podcast as we're speaking, this one right now, is that I was reading Twitter too much and it's really depressing. So just to read things and watch kind of the spectacle unfold is a truly depressing thing. Get in, like talk to people, go out, meet people. Um, there's lots of different things that you can do and ways that you can do it. It makes a huge difference. I'll probably talk more about it. I'll share my uh, experience more with Hillary. Uh, we're going to record tomorrow about chapter two of Aurora, but, um, you know, I like the face to face thing. I like door knocking. I don't like, I tried the texting thing once. I created a lot of anxiety for me. I don't know why just getting like response, like mean responses from people was not fun. I think cold calling people, I'm sure it, it works really well. And, uh, it's really important. I like to see people's faces. I don't like talking on the phone. I like to see people's faces and being able to react to them. And it's not that scary. If they don't want to talk to you, they either don't come to the door or they, they, you know, just say no thank you. They're not mean so far. I haven't run in, into any mean people. I did run into one Trump supporter, uh, which was interesting. I'll tell Hillary about that tomorrow. But uh, get involved. Uh, get involved out there. It's not too late. Even if you live in a Super Tuesday state, you can make phone calls into states that are not Super Tuesday states. Uh, even if you live in a state in like Ohio, uh, I mean, Iowa or New Hampshire, uh, that's already voted, um, you can still uh, for whoever again, for whatever candidate you support, you can still get involved. So do it. Okay, so I have three science fictions that I encountered over the last week or so that I wanted to share some thoughts with you about uh, uh, and if you're interested. So uh, the first one is a Philip K. Dick novel. Um, I found a bunch of Philip K. Dick novels at a used bookstore uh, like over the Christmas break basically. And uh, they were so cheap, so I couldn't pass them by. So the one that I read last week was called Martian Time Slip, which is a term everyone who's listened to this podcast and who's read the Mars trilogy uh, knows very well uh, as the kind of um, that kind of half hour extra of time in Martian time versus uh, 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 Earth time, right? Here in uh, the Philip K. Dick novel from 1964, I believe, it's used very differently. Uh, it's it, it's really a kind of almost quasi-psychedelic novel in, in certain respects uh, because Martian time slip here refers to um, the kind of almost like psychology of time experienced by what Dick refers to as uh, autistic children on Mars. So... The uh, world that's posited in this uh, book, it takes place in like the 1990s, I think. So we've colonized Mars. Uh, there are um, uh, people living on Mars in settlements. It's it's very like um, space westerny in the sense that uh, there's a kind of settler. I mean, there is a it's an explicitly settler colonialist world. Um where uh, there are uh, native Martians called bleak men who are essentially Aborigines. 
and they seem to be very slow and experience time at like different rates and intervals than uh, earthlings do, uh, the, especially like the people who have colonized Mars who are seem almost exclusively to be Americans and capitalists. I can't really remember if there's any like non-Americans there. Um, but it, it's very much capitalist time that dictates the, uh, you know, uh, Earth, Earth colonists of Mars. Uh, and their encounters with bleak men are um, few. There, there's not that many, uh, but they're crucial to the novel. But what's also posited in the novel that's happening is that children are being born on Mars who are um, schizophrenic or autistic. Dick is, you know, writing at this moment when these terms are sort of only emerging and these conditions are only beginning to be understood. So there is no, there's very little precision in what he's, or accuracy in what he's describing, um, which is why I kind of refer to it as almost quasi-psychedelic. Um, because at certain points we go into the mind of one of the autistic children. Um, and, uh, there's also a, a, a grown man character who's also schizophrenic and we see kind of, uh, the visions and the kind of internal subjectivity of these characters periodically. And it, it, and it's almost, there, there are passages here that belong almost could be, could be taken right from sort of, uh, William Burroughs, um, that kind of like hallucinatory, uh, uh, reverie, uh, moments. Um, the book, it's too complicated to explain the, the plot. Um, uh, essentially it involves land speculation, um, and getting one of these, uh, the, the Manfred Steiner is the name of this autistic boy who's the son of a black market dealer. Um, Another character uh, uh, named Arnie Cott, who is a kind of union leader, kind of a gangster figure, he sort of more or less kidnaps, not quite kidnaps, uh, the, the child uh, who he believes will be able to see the future and um, point him in the direction of what he thinks is going to be a treasure in the middle of the Martian desert, but is actually uh, a, a location in the what's called the FDR mountains, Franklin Delano Roosevelt mountains. A lot of the place names in Mars are named after like union leaders in, uh, in from Earth, uh, from like the Earth, Earth's like 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, he kidnaps the kid uh, to get him to sort of uh, tell the future about where uh, this treasure treasure is going to be, um, and, uh, to, to engage in this kind of land speculation. Um, it's a very satir. I think it's a, I think of it as a very satiric novel about the American dream because essentially what is reproduced on Mars, I mean, it's really just a novel of the contemporary sort of, uh, westward expansion and suburbanization of America, uh, transposed to the Martian landscape, kind of uh, uh, a contemporary novel in Martian uh, or science fictional drag in a certain sense. Um, there's one great uh, location in the book um, that is a public school um, where all the teachers are robots and they're basically like simulacra of world historical figures. Um, so you'll have like, um, I can't remember specific examples, but Socrates or Alexander the Great or Mark Twain, Thomas Edison are, are some of them uh, who um, are all like, you know, channeling those um, historical personages 
and uh, uh, controlled by a central computer, right? And at one point, the autistic child goes into, Manfred goes into the school and he starts talking to the, um, the robots and they uh, almost seem to, he kind of disrupts the entire system somehow because each of the robots is trained to, I mean, it's basically Mike Bloomberg's school, like the school that Mike Bloomberg would be ideal for Mike Bloomberg, fire all the teachers and like create an infinite number of students, right? Um, let's, you know, fire half the teachers and double the students, right? That kind of like stupidity that Mike Bloomberg is, uh, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, proposing. Um, here, all the robot teachers are uh, attuned to um, each student so they can respond to each of them individually while still kind of talking to large groups of them. Um, and they kind of, the students, the children all kind of wander around and get lectured at by these, uh, these, uh, these moving statues of history. Um, so it was very much a space, a kind of a space Western, uh, in that regard, very different than the, um, uh, than the books that we're used to um, reading from uh, from Robinson, uh, but it was extremely entertaining and 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 fun. Um, so that's one. The other two are films, and I might have uh, sort of more to say about them, uh, but we'll see. Um, the first one is the world, the flesh, and the devil which is a film uh, direct, written and directed by a man named Ranald McDougall, who I, th I think he directed very few films. He wrote um, more films than he directed, I think. Uh, and he, he, I think, I believe he did sort of have his roots in a kind of leftist uh, politics. Um, it's from 1959. Uh, it's based on, um, in part, it's based on a novel called The Purple Cloud, by M.P. Scheel, which is a post-apocalyptic novel, as I understand it, um, written in like 1909. Um, I've never read it. Um, uh, so it's based in part on that. And it stars Harry Belafonte, Inger Stevens, and Mel Ferrer. And what happens is, um, uh, at the beginning of the film, Harry Belafonte plays uh, Ralph Burton, who is a mine inspector. Um, so he's in a coal mine in like West Virginia or something. And he, there's like a cave in and he gets stuck in the cave and he's stuck there for like five days as people are trying to get him out or whatever. And he has no communication with the outside world. Finally, communication with the outside world seems to stop and he kind of starts to go crazy. So he burrows his way out uh, of this cave and comes to the surface and finds that everybody, there's nobody there. Everyone's gone. Uh, cars are left empty, you know, homes, offices, no one's there. There's no radio signals. Uh, just humanity has disappeared. And what it, uh, what he learns eventually is that a, a kind of a, an atomic poison, I guess the purple cloud, right, uh, has been released and swept over the world and it has, you know, dissolved all human life somehow, um, uh, not all biological life, but all human life is gone. Um, this was like a very common, um, I think, fantasy of, uh, this is a very common fantasy of post-apocalyptic fiction in general, but especially of the kind of Red Scare 1950s uh, atomic, you know, terror, atomic hysteria 
um, that there were the that, that there were that there were these new super weapons, either biological or chemical or nuclear in nature, that um, could like the neutron bomb, you know, destroy all life but leave all structures uh, in, intact. Um, Ralph Harry Belafonte. Um, makes his way from West Virginia to New York City because, of course, you would want to go to New York City. It's the only place there is, right? The um, the Big Apple. Um, but in search of, you know, I'm sure in like in search of uh, human life, he, he makes his way there, um, you know, finds no one. Uh, still, he, he's the only man left in Manhattan. And there's a long sequence toward the, in the first half of the film when he is, uh, you know, because he's a mine inspector, because he's a laborer, because he works with his hands, he's able to rebuild, uh, some significant section of the electrical grid of New York city, get car, get some cars to work and that kind of thing. So he's able to electrify an, uh, an apartment building that he, you know, occupies the, the penthouse of, uh, he gets some cars, uh, uh, going tow trucks and whatnot. Um, and he does things that are very common for um, post-apocalyptic science fiction films uh, of this time when there are very few survivors and of all uh, and of, you know, many post-apocalyptic um, uh, uh, narratives. He starts collecting things. He starts collecting culturally uh, significant objects. Uh, he starts getting books from the library and paintings from the museums because the infrastructure of those buildings is collapsing. And these, you know, artifacts of uh, uh, of the civilization that is actively, you know, uh, that has collapsed, um, uh, the infrastructure of these buildings is collapsing. And so these artifacts are at risk. So it's his notion that, you know, uh, we got to save these things, that that something of the past civilization, that the civilization that has just expired has to be preserved. I, I don't know where this idea comes from, but it's pervasive amongst post-apocalyptic science fiction. Um even be, uh, the, whether it's uh, whether it's the sort of uh, impulse to save things, or whether it's the persistence of old objects in the post-apocalypse, um, this is a this is a, a feature. It may come from sort of like anthropology and the discussion, the discovery of the Lascaux caves, and a kind of or, or maybe a a holdover from. Um, early 20th century Egyptomania, where people were just crazy about um, Egyptian artifacts and the fact that this civilization was being, you know, actively uh, rediscovered and dug up. Um, uh, signs of a of a of a past civilization that that we didn't know anything about and and we're only trying to figure out and piece together. Um, but you can see throughout post-apocalyptic science fiction. Uh, films at least, which uh, I know more about than literature, um, artifacts from the past that survive. So in Mad Max Fury Road, for instance, there's a, uh, a music box crank uh, that is kind of passed along. Um, in uh, Children of Men, you have that um, scene in the museum uh, that is preserving all of these old artifacts. Um, Oftentimes, there's a there's a there's a film called Book of Eli, I think, with um, 
Denzel Washington. I think it's based on the comic book. But the book of Eli, every, it's a post-apocalyptic future where no one knows how to read and he or very few people know how to read. And his book, of course, is the Bible. Um, oftentimes it's a Bible or a painting, some kind of atavistic avatar of uh, or artifact of the past that um, is being sort of actively preserved and fetishized. Um, so this film is sort of no exception in that regard. Uh, uh, the world, the flesh and the devil. Uh, he's always collecting things and bringing them back to his apartment. Um, and he does that kind of throughout the film. So at a certain point though, Oh, the other thing that he does is uh, on top of collecting these uh, artifacts, he also gets two mannequins from a department store. This is also a feature of um, post-apocalyptic science fiction cinema or survival cinema in general. You could think about Tom Hanks's uh, the volleyball in the, I guess it's called Castaway. I never saw it, but that the um, a lone survivor or, um, you know, the last man needs somebody to talk to, which is only logical. Uh, we only have our kind of subjectivity through relationship to others. Um, but, uh, in a lot of these, uh, post-apocalyptic films, it, it takes the form of a robot or a statue or, um, or often a mannequin. Um, and in the case of this film, he gets, uh, a man and a woman mannequin. Now, of course, they're white. And this plays an important foreshadowing role in the film. Uh, he He's flirtatious with the uh, female mannequin. And he is somewhat combative with the male mannequin. He gives them both names. I can't remember what they are, but they're, it's, you know, it's like Bob and Carol or something like that. Um, and at a certain point, he is arguing... <laughs> With the male mannequin, <clears throat> maybe he's imagining the male mannequin is arguing with him, but uh, I think he's saying something like, uh, um, you know, I don't like the way you're looking at me or something. And he ends up throwing him off the balcony of his penthouse apartment. The mannequin lands on the f ground, you know, many stories down, and he hears a scream and he looks down and he sees a lone figure there who actually we the audience have have been seeing we've 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 seen her before as she is uh has recognized him has found him and is kind of sneaking around um spying on him this is played by uh Inger Stevens uh uh the character's name is Sarah Crandall um a young blonde uh white woman she screams as the mannequin uh, uh, falls to the to the floor, to the ground, uh, and he, you know, yells down at her, "Stay where you are." He comes downstairs. They finally meet. She was worried that it was him who had killed himself uh, because she's so lonely. She wants, you know, she she she's looking for companionship. Um, she's holed up in some other apartment, uh, other building. And uh, she uh, wants to move into Ralph's building, but Ralph like forbids it. He he wires her. He gets her building wired up for electricity. They become they 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 embark on a friendship. Um, they become close, uh, but almost immediately, the sex thing arises. Right, um, 
that uh, they're maybe they're the last two people on Earth. Does that mean they have to repopulate the Earth? I don't think that's ever really broached. But the fact of the kind of uh, urge of sexuality is there, and it's acknowledged particularly by Sarah, by the Inger Stevens character. Harry, Bel Harry Belafonte's character, now this is 1959, this film. So Harry Belafonte's character is extremely reluctant um, and averse to acknowledging any kind of sexual attraction with Inger Stevens, with, with Sarah, or toward Sarah Crandall. And at certain points, she's, she kind of intimates, you know, why, you know, she's definitely attracted to him. I mean, he's Harry, Harry's Harry Belafonte, you know, I mean, he's attractive. Um, she intimates to him, you know, like, why, what are we waiting for? You know, basically, let's do this. I'm horny, right? <laughs> but um, in 1955, 59, um, it would have been, and I, from what I understand, Harry Belafonte was not very happy about this, uh, about his character, uh, his character's response to this. You know, it was sort of unthinkable to have uh, an interracial romance on screen. So, uh, and keep in mind, this is, you know, four years after the uh, murder of Emmett Till, who was lynched simply for, you know, looking at a white woman the wrong way. So, and this is, you know, in the midst of the, you know, the, the civil rights movement, uh, just getting launched. Um, so, and, and for a mainstream Hollywood movie, um, it would have been unthinkable to show a kind of willing romance between them, certainly to have, uh, these two people kiss, um, or a fade to black, which would indicate, the you know uh, the the have that that they would be having sex so ralph harry belafonte is put in the position of being essentially the noble black man who has so internalized the racism of his society that he eschews any romantic entanglement with sarah despite the fact that he is attracted to her and she is attracted to him and is willing to engage in a sexual relationship with him and the fact that they are literally potentially the last two people on earth. He, he refuses to step outside the racist boundaries that his society uh, has drawn for him. Um, very much like uh, a Sidney Poitier character. I mean, Belafonte and Poitier were the only two black leading men in Hollywood up until God, I mean, like the late sixties, maybe Jim Brown would be the next one. I'm not sure who, but, um, two, you know, extraordinarily attractive black leading men, um, who were not allowed to have, uh, romantic relationships with white women. Um, and, and therefore were put on this sort of pedestal. Uh, they had to inhabit characters. They had to, they had to play characters who were so far removed from sexuality that it became, you know, absurd in a certain way. Um, especially when you look at it today, it, it just is something that just, you know, you really have to put yourself into the mindset of the 1950s to understand uh, what's going on. And then once you're in that mindset, you really understand how oppressive uh, the American state was at that time. 
uh, it is no exaggeration, it is actually totally accurate to describe the American state as an apartheid state up until 1965, a de jure apartheid state, right? Like black people did not have the right to vote until the Voting Rights Act. Um, you can still, I think there's a case to be made, very strong case to be made, to say that the American, that the United States is still an apartheid state today, uh, de facto, right? And in, you know, it, depending on how you want to analyze it, you could, in terms of like the the incarceration rates and uh, how laws are used to target certain populations, you could make the argument that it's a de jure apartheid state today. But in 1959, um, you know, it was unthinkable to have these two people physically attracted to each other or engage in any kind of physical uh, sexual uh, uh, relationship. So what happens in the movie is, um, you know, they've, they've sort of agreed to just be friends. Um, and then Mel Ferrer shows up. Now, Mel Ferrer is an older actor. Um, let's see, I should look up what other movies that he was in. Um, you would probably recognize him. I'm trying to think of, uh, I think of him as like a riverboat gambler character. I wonder where I'm getting that from. Um, not an unattractive man. Uh, he's certainly had a kind of dashing quality. Um, what else was he in? He was in War and Peace. I don't know. I I I much I watched too many movies because I actually recognized the guy. And oh, I know what it is. Okay, guys, Mel Ferrer played Frenchie Fairmont. Yes, Frenchie Fairmont in Rancho Notorious, the f the the film the the western directed by Fritz Lang. He directed more than one western, but um, Rancho Notorious is probably the best one that he directed. The best meaning like kind of the craziest. It has um, uh, 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 Marlena Dietrich, of course, um, uh, who who plays another great character name. I'm looking it up because I can't remember. Alter Keen and uh, Arthur Kennedy is in it. Uh, Jack Elam is in it. it. It's a great movie. George Reeves, uh, Superman, if you remember, was in it. Uh, anyway, that's where I know um, Mel Ferrer from. Mel Ferrer shows up. He's a little bit older. Uh, but importantly, he's white, right? And uh, he, he shows up on a, in a boat. And he's kind of wounded. Um, and they nurse him back to health. And immediately he basically assumes that it is his, uh, you know, that he has dominion over the body of Sarah, that he that he uh, is the rightful kind of mate to this uh, young white woman. He's never so presumptuous, never so uh, arrogant as that. Um, <clears throat> but it's quite clear that, uh, I mean, at one point, even before he showed up, Ralph says to Sarah, you know, there might be other people out there and it would be inappropriate for me to take you. <laughs> uh, more or less this is what he says. I mean, he may use those exact words. I can't quite remember, but it would be it would be inappropriate for me for us to have this relationship if there are, you know, suitable suitors, i.e. white suitors out there for you. I mean, they're the thing that's, you know, we have to assume or that is that we have to acknowledge that is completely assumed by the film is that uh, homosexuality is completely off the table. 
right? It's never a question that maybe Inger Stevens' character is not attracted to men or that Harry Belafonte's character is not attracted to women or that neither of them are attracted to people at all, right? Uh, heterosexuality is just, you know, the presumed, you know, the baseline presumption uh, of this film, which is not surprising for a Hollywood, for an American Hollywood film, right? Um, so anyway, and it's also, you know, never even a, a question that when Mel Ferrer's character, Ben Thacker shows up, that he might be attracted to Ralph, right? That's not going to be uh, an issue either. Um, the only real issue is, you know, um, will, I mean, the, the only real issue within the realm of the film is will Sarah acknowledge Ben's right to her body or will she which the film also which the which the film sees as uh, it, it should be said the film doesn't see that as a proper outcome right the film is an anti-racist film in that it acknowledges that uh the proper couple is the attractive couple <laughs> the one between harry belafonte and inger stevens that's the one that we want to see get together um uh and the barriers that are that are put up there are like psychosocial, essentially. They're psychopolitical. Um, they're 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 put into the mind of the Harry Belafonte character. Uh, so Ben shows up. He's kind of uh, he's trying to kind of woo Sarah. Um, Sarah is definitely more into Ralph. She's open to being courted, but you know there's no attraction there that she demonstrates toward Ben. Um, at a certain point, she gets very frustrated and sort of more or less says, go ahead and, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know, um, take me if you're going to take me. Uh, but she, you know, she's, she's certainly resistant to it. Um, and uh, this leads to Ben's, you know, ultimate frustration uh, because he knows that as long as Ralph is around, Sarah will never be hers, be, never be his, right? Um, which leads him to the very logical conclusion that he's got to kill Ralph. Now, I don't know how it works, but if, you know, the object of your affection is in love with somebody else and then you decide I'll kill that guy so that she'll love me, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but this is what Ben decides so he uh gets a rifle and he starts shooting at at ralph and ralph gets a gun and he kind of starts shooting at ben and they almost have a kind of like uh dual type of thing uh uh in the street you know but at a certain point ralph uh they're kind of chasing each other through new york in this kind of uh they're hunting each other in a way and ralph comes across the United Nations with the inscription about beating, uh, beating guns into plowshares or whatever it is, beating swords into plowshares, um, and, uh, making peace, uh, with everybody or world peace, right? He walks to where Ben is and sort of calls him out and he throws his gun down and he steps toward Ben, who's like aiming a rifle at his chest and just sort of demands that they, you know, not do this, that they make peace with each other. Sarah shows up. Um, uh, ben is sort of, I think, one of the two of them walk away 
and and Sarah, I think it's Ben actually, the white guy, uh, walks away, and Sarah calls him back, um, and the three of them uh, walk away from the camera. This is the end of the film. Spoiler alert: walk away from the camera, holding hands. Ralph on the left, holding Sarah's hand. Sarah in the middle, holding Ben's hand on the right, so that she sort of bridges these two men. Um, you know, whether they form a thruple or not, I don't think that, you know, that's necessarily intimated, but basically the ending suggests let's, <laughs> let's try to figure this out on our own <laughs> rather than killing, killing each other about it. Um, it's, it's ambivalent. I mean, I think in terms of the, the ending, uh, does it mean that Sarah is going to, you know, um, uh, be sexually open with both of them? Does it mean that Ben has relented and allowed Ralph and Sarah to become a couple? Does it mean that Ralph um, is putting aside his own internalized sort of um, the own internal his, his own internalized racism against himself and the, the the and the idea that he can't you know have a relationship with this white woman uh, you know that's never resolved. It's just that the three of them have have resolved not to kill each other and not to rape Sarah, <laughs> essentially, uh, and that they're going to live in peace, right? Uh, somehow, and they uh, walk away from the camera. And the the ending is not. It doesn't say the end. It says the beginning, right? This kind of sort of hopeful ending. Um, but it, it's a very Hollywood film in its ambivalent ending because it doesn't come down on any side, really, other than the side of, <clears throat> of a kind of abstract piece. It doesn't resolve the kind of sexual political conflict, right? Um, it, it doesn't resolve uh, whether there are other people in the world, um, what the terms of the new society they, they're going to build are it's just an abstract hopefulness about um the uh future of race and gender relations um that will hope you know will hopefully materialize uh in this uh finally <laughs> now that society is over maybe we can you know solve society's ills if we can just boil it down to three people instead of uh hundreds of millions right so um the World of Flesh and the Devil, it's very watchable. It's a very watchable movie. I recommend it if you can find it. I was watching it on, I watched it on TCM, which, um, I mean, I can't recommend highly enough TCM. It's not a, they're not a sponsor, but they have such great selection. It's a watchable film. It's kind of like a bloated Twilight Zone episode, if that appeals to you. I think it's a, a ringing endorsement frankly um it, it's very much like a twilight zone episode it's black and white i don't know how they got some of the shots that they got because it really does appear to be the case that um america or like um new york city is uninhabited and completely destroyed i mean there's definitely some special effects going on but it's a lot of practical shots too it's probably a lot of studio backlot i mean that they really knew what they were doing back then in terms of using backlots and, 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 uh, and, and, and stuff like that and pra and practical sets. Um, so I, you know, it's a nice time at the movies. The third film, the final film that I'll talk about, or the third text, second film that I'll talk about 
relates a little bit more closely to Aurora, uh, which we're reading this this time around, Hillary and I. Um, it's the film version of The Wandering Earth, which is a Chinese novella, which began as a Chinese novella. It's based on the, the novel by Liu Xichin. I may not be pronouncing that correctly. Um, uh, it came out last year, directed by Frant Guo. Um, and what it's about, it's a really interesting film. It's not a good film. It's not a great film. Um, it's definitely not great. I don't think it's necessarily good, but it is interesting. It's hard for me to know what's good or anymore because the world is upside down. It's a film and it's interesting and it's interesting for a number of different reasons. Okay. What's the premise of the movie? The premise of the movie is that in 2061, which is a significant year in the Mars trilogy, um, universe, uh, the sun is about to, it shows signs that it's going to go supernova or something that it's going to explode and, you know, encompass the entire solar system and burn up everything in it. Uh, the knowledge of this is enough. The discovery of this is enough to mobilize the entire world to form a united earth government to come under the banner of one united government and initiate the wandering earth project. The wandering earth project is a project to turn the entire planet into an intergalactic, an interplanetary spaceship so that the planet itself, the entire planet earth is going to go all the way to alpha Centauri. It's a project that's going to take 2,500 years. Uh, but, uh, it's, you know, of course it's vitally important to preserve humanity. And here comes my crying cat waiting to be fed right on time. So, uh, What's interesting, so it's a Chinese film. Uh, so what happens in it is, um, you know, a few years into the voyage, they're about to go past sat, uh, uh, Jupiter. They're going to slingshot past Jupiter. And it turns out that they're on a bad trajectory and they're going to crash into Jupiter instead. There's some malfunction going on. And they're probably going to crash into Jupiter anyway, but then there's a malfunction with the engines. There's, there's, there's 10,000 engines around Earth that are propelling it into the cosmos, right? Everyone now lives underground. Half of, because they stopped the rotation of Earth with these giant engines, and which caused massive tsunamis, which killed half the population of Earth, right? So right away, you have this populationist uh, discourse about we can't save everybody that we're going to have to, you know, sacrifice a huge number of people in order to maintain, uh, you know, human, human life is going to, the main maintenance of human life is going to require the killing half of human life. It's a kind of, you know, Thanatos, uh, Malthusian, uh, uh, solution. Um, so half the population is dead. Half the population now lives underground, a good uh, several thousand people live in a um, live and work in a satellite that's kind of uh, running in front of the Earth, uh, you know, clearing out objects or whatever, and like monitoring its progress. Um, 
And, uh, but they discovered that they're going to crash into Jupiter. So they have to come up with some kind of solution. Plus all the engines on earth suddenly shut down. Um, and they have to restart them all. Now the restarting of the, uh, what's interesting about the film, uh, is, well, there's a lot of things. It's in a very American film. What I mean by that now, I'm not an expert in Chinese cinema at all, or Chinese literature, or, or China, or anything like that. But what I mean when I say it's a very American film is that the film itself is structured and focalized through the subjectivity, or the single character, or, or the character of more or less one male protagonist. Um, there, are, there are multiple protagonists in it. It's a kind of uh, Howard Hoxian film in that way. You, you know, uh, the it's a film about a, a group of protagonists, each with um, different uh, uh, skills and and qualities that have to come together and you know utilize their strengths and and minimize their weaknesses. And uh, you know, there's a fair amount of like uh, what passes for witty banter and things like that. Um, but for the most part, there's there is one. Uh, male protagonist. You could call, you could say that there are two, but uh it, it's it's probably easier to describe it as one simply because that one male protagonist the, the the one male protagonist is the son of the other male protagonist, right? So another way in it's in which it's a very American or like maybe western story is that the male protagonist is sort of edipally conflicted right? Because his father is the kind of captain of the space station that is running point for the earth. And so he left home, the father left earth when the kid was only like four or something. And so he's been gone for 17 years. So he has this like Oedipal, this unresolved Oedipal conflict with his father, which is uh, a <laughs> tried and true, uh, model of narrative storytelling and just of living in modernity and capitalism. So, um, that's one way it's, <clears throat> it's very American. Um, and, and of course the, the kind of, uh, the resolution to the story, the final resolution to the story, um, is deeply psychologized, right? It has to do with the, the son remembering something that the father said and kind of like artifacts that uh, objects that reappear that have psychological resonance. Um, it has to do with overcoming the past while recapitulating it in some way. Um, all of these things. Um, one way that it's another way that it's very interesting is in its anti-Americanness or it's non-Americanness. Now, what I mean by that, it's kind of, you know, obviously contradictory in, in, in terms of its narrative structure, it feels like a very American blockbuster, which is very significant. I'll explain in a minute. In terms of, uh, it's the content of the film. It's very non not quite anti-American, but non-American. What I mean by that is that there are almost no American characters in the film. There are certainly no main American characters in the film. So I don't think there's a single American uh, character in the film with a speaking role. 
Uh, America uh, appears at the beginning of the film in a kind of montage sequence. Uh, there's kind of setting in America. Uh, during the kind of rescue operation to restart all the engines, there is an American crew that we only get, a, you know, a glimpse of. There's the cat. Um, but among the main Hoxian group of experts with different personalities and backgrounds, they are almost, it's an international group, but that international group does not consist of any Americans, Right. Very, I think, significant. One of the members, most of the members of the group are Chinese. I think if I knew more about uh, Chinese accents and language groups, we might be able to recognize that they come from different parts of China, right? A kind of, it's a very nationalistic film, right? Um, most of the, the members of the group and the groups are Chinese. One of the members is a mixed race uh, guy who is, Australian and Chinese. So he's very, he's blonde and very pale and his name is Tim, uh, which is hilarious. The father who is on the space station, his best friend is Russian and they speak to each other in their native languages. So the Chinese father speaks Chinese to the Russian and the Russian speaks Russian to the Chinese father. They're best friends. Um, and there are a handful of Indian characters, uh, but but as I recall, they don't really have much um, of a major role. You know, what's interesting about this to me is the centrality of China within a kind of hyper-nationalist, which is really what I mean by American uh, narrative, that... Um, and in the wrapping of a global blockbuster, that's really important, okay? China, uh, China's film industry has been embarking on a project of creating roughly one major action blockbuster that will be released globally each year for the past few years. So in one year... <clears throat> The best example of this is, is, I think it was 2017, a film called Wolf Warrior 2. Wolf Warrior 2 um, was the seventh or eighth largest grossing film in the world. Uh, if, it, if you didn't see it at your local movie theater, there's a good reason for that. Of its $980 million that it made at the box office, it made like 95% of that in China. You know, it did get an international release, but because, I mean, I guess people missed Wolf Warrior 1, uh, uh, but um, it got an international release, but for the most part, it was, it was you know, only, only seen in China. Like China itself, uh, we, you know, compare this to the Marvel movies. Um, Marvel movies are released everywhere around the world all at once, and they make, you know, uh, one or $1.5 billion in box office. China released Wolf Warrior 2 only in China alone. It almost made $1 billion. So that's how big a market China is. Every blockbuster you see from here on out, every especially every action blockbuster that you see for the next rest of your life um, will be somehow molded by the China market. Uh, these blockbusters that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make cannot make uh, a profit without 
having a, a release in China, and therefore they can't you know, feature certain things about China and the Chinese state, uh, uh, or uh, politics or economics or social uh, movements that the Chinese state finds um, uh, 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 unacceptable, uh, because the Chinese state, of course, has censorship power over what plays in China. What's interesting about The Wandering Earth is that uh, it did get an international release. I saw it in a movie theater in uh, outside of Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago last year. Um, and what struck me about it is that for a film that is looking for an international release, it had no, you know, the, the, the international uh, characters that it featured in it were Russian and Australian and not American at all. Um, for an American film, uh, you might expect, especially if you go back to the 50s or the 60s or the 70s and you think about uh, film, major films that had like sort of international casts, you might have like multiple, or the 90s or the early 2000s, you might have casts that would have, uh, you know, actors um, f uh, the, who, whose national origins were from countries that the film expected to do well in, countries that the U.S. film producers would have relied upon for a return on investment, for a for a for an international release and um, a way to market that film in that region. Here, China didn't see the need to do that at all, right? To include an American character with which American audiences could identify. Um, they did not see the need, you know, to hire whatever, Tom Cruise or, um, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Timothy Oliphant or, or, or Will Smith, right? Um, they didn't see the need to include an American character at all in this film about the entire world coming together, um, to turn the earth into one large spaceship. Um, that seems like really interesting to me, right? Because it speaks to, um, as American films do, uh, especially giant, big blockbuster American films, these are films of national significance, right? These are films of um, uh, that uh, are integral kind of examples of the functioning of the ideological state apparatus. They um, represent the country to itself and to uh, and to others and to international audiences. Um, uh, they uh, seek to um, congeal a kind of um, national subjectivity around them in a certain way. Um, and an international subjectivity either, you know, around them or within them or in opposition to them. So the fact that the best friend of the father of the captain of the space shuttle space station is Russian. Um, and that one of the kind of, it, he's the comic relief character. One of the, one of the other characters is, uh, Australian Chinese, um, should say a lot about, you know, how China imagines itself on the world stage. Um, in really, you know, you know, in relation to other countries. And especially in really, and including in relation to countries that are not uh, that that are not included, right? Um, going back to Wolf Warrior Two, Wolf Warrior Two 
is an even more um, American film than The Wandering Earth is because it's essentially a film about um, uh, imperialism, about Chinese imperialism in Africa. Uh, the Chinese, um, you know, the Chinese special agent kind of super soldier who uh, played by, um, oh, I can't remember his name, Wu Jing, I think. It's the same actor who plays the father in um, in The Wandering Earth. He's this kind of super soldier who uh, goes into Africa and it kind of, you know, saves Africa from itself in a certain way uh, by injecting, you know, Chinese uh, nationalism into it. Um, it's a, it's extremely violent, uh, film. Um, and, uh, extremely racist film. Uh, the, the way, the way Africans are depicted in the film is extraordinarily, uh, racist. Um, and it also pit, posits the real villain as not America, not the U S government or the U S military, but as a mercenary group that is led by uh, a U.S. soldier, a former U.S. soldier, right? So that it's not even the American government; it's um, the mercenary, uh, you know, capitalist uh, uh, for hire army that itself is led by. I mean, it's essentially uh, uh, Eric Prince. <laughs> Eric Prince is really the ultimate bad guy in in Wolf Warrior Two. Um, it it just says it's just really interesting. It says a lot about kind of um, in terms of using uh, kind of cultural imperialism and uh, big blockbuster uh, entertainment uh, on the world stage as a form of kind of soft diplomacy, if you will. Um, uh, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting example of that. Uh, it's on Netflix. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's not, uh, it's not a, like I said, it's not a great film. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a good film. It is also another way, way that it's interesting, I, which I won't talk too much about, is the way that it uses special effects because uh, it's it's almost entirely, you know, special effects. I, I can't, I don't even know. There's a few uh, scenes that are shot in what look like a uh, physical set. Um, but, you know, there's an enormous amount of special effects going on here. It it also resonates with um, classic science fiction films in in certain ways, like 2001: A Space Odyssey, um, Alien, um, uh, Gravity, the more recent Gravity. Uh, just in terms of the way that it shows kind of uh, spacewalks and stuff like that. Um, uh, it. You know, it it's a it's a true kind of blockbuster aesthetic in that it borrows from a lot of other blockbusters. Um, uh, a, a one uh, interesting way that it <clears throat> contrasts with the big blockbusters that we're used to today, especially regarding the Marvel movies, is that the I, actually I think the special effects look a lot better in this film than they do in a lot of the Marvel movies. Um, the lighting is better. You can see a lot more of what's going on. It's extremely chaotic. It's hard to kind of make out everything. I would not watch this on your laptop, for instance. I'd watch this on a bigger screen. Uh, it's definitely made for that, for a big screen. There's a lot going on in the image. Um, but it's definitely, uh, you know, competently made. Uh, the narrative is a kind of a mess. It really falls apart. I mean, it, 
just in terms of like how time passes, it's absurd at the end. This is why I say it's probably not even a good movie. Uh, you know, it's one of these things where we have half an hour to do this or whatever. And you know, how can these things take place in that amount of time? It doesn't make any sense, but, um, uh, it's still kind of fun. It is melodramatic in the sense that all Hollywood blockbuster films are melodramatic, right? Um, but anyway, um, as far as like the science fictional properties of the movie, I wouldn't even begin to talk about them. It's a two, 2,500 year voyage from earth to Alpha Centauri. Um, and the, the heroes, the heroic characters of the film, another interesting thing are essentially truck drivers who go and pick up, uh, they, they are essentially what they're doing is mountaintop uh, strip mining, right? Uh, because they are using rocks to fuel the uh, engines that are propelling Earth through space. So they're doing mountaintop removal um, and these giant trucks uh, are uh, piloted by, I mean, they're truck drivers, right? Um, are piloted by these guys who end up being like the true heroes of the film. Um, and, and it, it, it's, it's kind of a, yeah, it, yeah. It, it's interesting because they're like essentially working class truck driver people who are the true heroes of, you know, saving the, saving the world. Um, uh, so that kind of discourse is really interesting too, in terms of like, actually like putting kind of quasi working class uh, figures at the centerpiece of something like this, kind of like Armageddon, uh, the Bruce Willis movie, the Michael, Michael Bay, Bruce Willis movie. Um, anyway, that's all. I don't have anything more to say. Do I? That's probably good. Um, we'll be back. We're going to record tomorrow, uh, about chapter two of Aurora and we'll have that out for you, uh, on, you know, soon. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope, this was not boring and stupid, but if it was, it's your fault for listening to it. So, um, yeah. Bye.